the 11FS offices in London for episode 127 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Is Too Little Too Late for Bitfinex, The SEC Slams Fraudsters for Christmas, and Getting Rich as Fuck on BitClub, yet another crypto Ponzi scheme. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Matthew Pollard, CFO and co-founder of Archax. How are you doing, sir? I am very well. Thank you for having me back. No, thank you, sir. Uh, how have you been? Are you all ready for Christmas? I am ready for Christmas. Uh, I've been I've been very well. Things are going very well with Archax, and we continue to move in the right direction of travel. So I'm very happy, but I'm very ready for a rest. Uh, that sounded incredibly vague. Yeah, like, I'm trying to give you the political answer. But yeah, but things look, are extremely positive, and I'm, when I say that, I mean on the fundraising front, on our discussions with the regulator, on our discussions with market makers, on our discussions with products that will list on our venue. And for anyone that doesn't know, Archax is a going after permissions to be a regulated venue for the trading of securities, and those securities exist on distributed ledger. We're also going after brokerage permissions and custody permissions, so there is a lot to be doing with the regulator. When anybody says custody, I start to get hungry, so um, I better get moving. Um, Before we get started, do you love fintech as much as I love puns? Well, uh, great news. We've launched the uh, relaunched the 11FS newsletter. Every Friday, you'll receive a summary of the biggest stories of the week in our own 11FS style, uh, along with interesting blogs and so, so much more to your inbox. It's just like a little little nugget of 11FS culture in your inbox every Sounds week. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, and if you're not a subscriber, you can sign up today at 11FS.com forward slash newsletter. You Great. could just be doing that on your phone right now. If you... I will get straight on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Press ganging guests into <laughs> signing up for things. Yeah. It's a thing. All right, let's get on with the news. First story this week comes from The Block, and this is about the European Central Bank, quote, hoping to get ahead of the curve on stablecoins. This is uh, ECB President Christine Lagarde during her debut press conference highlighting the increased interest that central banks in Canada, the UK, and other countries have exhibited in the digital currency space, urging the ECB to take the lead with regard to stablecoins. And there's a quote here. Uh, Christine Lagarde says, My personal conviction is that given the developments we are seeing, uh, not so much in the Bitcoin segment, but in the stablecoins projects, and we only know uh, of one at the moment, but there are others being developed and explored, uh, we'd better be ahead of the curve if that happens, because there's clearly demand out there that we've yet to respond to. So this is like saying Libra without saying Libra, right? I think it is saying Libra without saying Libra. I also think it's acknowledgement of the recent recent announcements out of China. Uh, it's getting close now to a, a state-sponsored Bitcoin initiative, top to bottom, uh, blockchain initiative as well. And so uh, I, my take on this is you've seen the um, this announcement and Lagarde saying that they want to be ahead of the curve, but they're already behind the curve because of what's happening in China. Mm-hmm. But I do think... Libra was a catalyst for all this. I think it's spooked lots of countries all around the world. And even though you could view it as a, a hyper-fractionalized money market fund with fees and risks that just can't be quantified mm-hmm. yet, what it is has scared governments all around the world. Because mm-hmm. because if they pull this off, there'll be this situation where the Libra Association out of Switzerland or maybe the US, if the US government gets its own way, will be taking um, fiat 
money from billions of people all around the world and placing it into bank accounts, probably directly with central banks. But then the payment systems and the granularity and the kind of transactional flow information that central banks have access to right now, it'll kind of all um, cease to exist if all of the if lots of payment flow activity happens on the Libra network and you'll have Instagram and WhatsApp and you'll have people transferring money from A to B all around the world, but with close to no government oversight or kind Mm. of information. And so their ability to collect tax, their ability to know information on people, I I think, based on my understanding of it, and I could be wrong, looks to potentially be compromised if people do on board to this thing. Mm. And then, of course, China has announced its digital currency electronic payment, DCEP, as a national digital currency. Um, It's built with, quote, blockchain and cryptographic technology, which uh, is a little bit different in how it's designed. It's sort of... um, Hmm. <laughs> yeah. There, there might be chaining of blocks in there. We don't really know. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's potentially a, a state sponsored government database to allow uh, mm. the capture of payment flows and value transfer in a way that is, is, be, is shown to be embracing blockchain. Um, it, I'd be interested to see what actually happens with it. But in a world where 65% of the mining power behind Bitcoin exists in China, there's clearly something that they want to capture there. And China as a country has two currencies. It has a domestic currency and has an international currency that was brought in in 2004. So they have history of putting in the right structures, putting in the right systems to make currency work for them. And and this kind of thing is just a digital, for me, is just a digital expression of uh, of their their strategy of what is currency and how they absolutely control it internally because the internal currency is controlled by the PBOC and how they've got this kind of external currency that they face the world with and they and they settle trade in and things like that so it's it's absolutely fascinating and I've not been in the blockchain crypto space for much longer than two and a half years but what a world if you were in this space five, ten years, and you now see such an acknowledgement all around the world of what the power of blockchain can potentially bring. Which is interesting, because I generally hear when like fintech or bankers hear the word blockchain at the moment, they go, oh, not again. And then if you talk to a central banker, they're like, oh, my God, this is the most, it's like top of their agenda. Absolutely. There's this real cognitive dissonance between like where the where the real action is at the policy level and at yep. the banker level and the seriousness and the gravity of it and yep. just kind of how everybody feels about it and the mood music in people who were looking at this two, three years ago. The tastemakers have kind of got bored, but the, yeah, the real action is happening. Yeah, the tastemakers have got bored and also bits of the financial press, especially if you go on places like Alphaville, they have um, some amazing articles on blockchain in Bitcoin, and they really do not mess around with their point. But where I do think it's interesting is at the financial market infrastructure and central bank level. They are, because of, um, they are looking at it. And I think what happened in 2008 was the entire financial monetary system nearly seized up and collapsed. And any tool that gives them uh, governments and FMIs the ability to have greater granularity of information around flows between companies, between countries during times of stress, uh, that they they should embrace it, and I believe they are embracing it. And that's why I think uh, digital representations of government-issued currency will be, mo- will be most popular at a kind of FMI, bank, clearinghouse, huge amounts level first before we see a proliferation of 
government-backed digital amongst retail. Which to person on the street probably doesn't mean a lot, but to person that works in investment banking means everything. Absolutely. Like if, if this takes off and there is a more frictionless way to transfer fi- uh, fiat representations of currency, that will have uh, big ramifications for capital markets. And I think that's why it's so exciting. And that's why I think uh, private permission chains like Corda and Hyperledger are, are seeing so much traction at the moment because you see big institutions realizing that they have the ability to settle trade finance contracts or move fiat currency in a, in a much more frictionless way than they previously have been able to. And, and they're just it's very exciting for them to explore that because if they reduce friction, they reduce costs mm-hmm. and they make more money. True DVP and PVP at long, long last, it Absolutely. can happen. Um, but uh, interesting looking at this from a European perspective, like Christine Lagarde is probably looking to DECP coming from China or Facebook as a, as a potential private-owned uh, company. Uh, now, obviously, with Libra being 20 organization, it's it, it's a little bit different to that. But still, your competition with the euro is, is definitely something that's there in the geopolitical sphere as well. Absolutely. But Europe's been trying to do Target 2 for how long and then MIFID 2 took forever like these things happen in in an age and can can central banks compete on a tech for tech level even with all of the policy muscle that they have well do things happen in an age in Europe because of the structural setup of Europe and all the different countries I think that's a good question to pose there whereas if you're in a place like China someone says get it done and they get it done but where does that leave you versus you know, on the international stage, if it's still going to take you that long, if you've got on the one hand private companies coming at it, and on the other hand, uh, kind of uh, the likes of a China doing it, I would say that leaves you in a very challenging spot. And perhaps there needs to be some public-private initiative to try and get as far up the curve as they possibly can. Mm, it seems like um, the bottom up and top down it just hasn't quite connected yet, and it will do. There's there's lots of interesting projects like Utility Supplement Coin that have been around for some time, HQLAX. There's mm. there's many out there. Navora have been working with the London Stock Exchange Group. Yep. Those sorts of projects have got dangerously close to cracking the nut, but they just seem to be stuck at CSDs, really. Absolutely. And um, as an example of a Navora-powered endeavor, uh, Santander, it successfully issued a few months ago and successfully redeemed a $20 million-ish uh, debt instrument, blockchain, back to front. Absolutely fantastic. Shout out to John Whelan over at Santander. All right, um, story from Coindesk.com. Uh, the Swiss government are apparently skeptical on central bank digital currency. So they basically come out and said in a statement, uh, universally accessible central bank digital currency would bring no additional benefits for Switzerland at present. Instead, it would give rise to new risks, especially with regard to financial stability. However, they did say there was a role for a quote-unquote digital franc that was confined to use amongst financial institutions. This isn't that surprising, is it? No, not at all. And it is interesting because the Swiss, as far as I'm concerned, have been leaders in their uh, approach and documentation and public stance on everything blockchain. And they've put out some amazing pieces that I personally have learned a lot from. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much I take this this uh, this quote seriously, um, yeah, but, I- it, but it does make sense that directly retail is not the priority of of any uh, 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 Swiss 
initiative to create the franc on the blockchain. It totally makes sense that financial that's institutions... That's not surprising, is it? I mean, uh, yeah. I think Daniel Palmer here, the journalist at um, Coindesk, has written a, a headline that's generated clicks. But yes. uh, if you go to, I'm going to quote it again, Bank of England Working Paper 605 from 2016 uh, was the first piece of economic analysis uh, that looked at, you know, what are the options, what are all the things that digital currency could mean? Mm. And it was the first um, central bank piece of work on central bank digital currencies. Mm -hmm. And it was a phenomenal piece of work. And they said, look, you, you've got a spectrum of opportunities from one end, it's sort of institutionally focused. And on the other end of the spectrum, it's available to every consumer like cash. And if it's available to every consumer like cash, then wouldn't everybody want exposure to that rather than their uh, rather than their retail banks? And would that create an issue around money supply? And would that um, sort of create a rush towards narrow banking where everybody has an account with a central bank, which we've tried to move away from, which would have economic consequences. And they, they came to the conclusion, yes, it probably would. So maybe that's not something we want to do. Mm. So now the question becomes is, is there value in something like account-to-account -account payments or wallet-to-wallet -wallet payments or something that feels like in between those two? Yeah. And what does that actually mean technically and from a, from a regulation standpoint? And then secondly, there's this central bank digital currency for the institutions conversation. And it feels to me like the Swiss government's just kind of come to the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I think we'll see. I think we'll see fintechs. Uh, it, certainly, I'm aware of a few in London where you can now directly face the Bank of England. And I know Carney made some comments this year where where he's keen for that mm -hmm. to that to happen more. Uh, so I think you'll just see an evolution of that where people will start to put the digital representation of the company that directly faces the Bank of England on the blockchain. Well, I don't think it'll face retail um, first. As, as part of the real-time growth settlement upgrade, there's a whole bunch of stuff the Bank of England are going to be doing. I think of the central banks in the West to watch, Bank of England might be uh, an interesting one to, to, we to are, keep an eye on. We are blessed to be based in London. Uh, the FCA and the Bank of England, I think, um, are thought leaders in this space. And certainly when you look at other uh, advanced jurisdictions, they suffer from having multiple regulators or multiple regulators across multiple states. Mm -hmm. And that is hampering their ability to get ahead of the curve. Whereas we don't have that here. Indeed. Oh, well, look at us showing off. Uh, all right. Um, next story comes from The Block, and this is about Fidelity Digital Assets intending to support Ethereum in 2020. And uh, recently on an episode of The Scoop, which is a podcast from The Block, shout out to Mike Dudas and those guys. Um, yeah, this has got a bit podcast inception. It has. It? Um, the Ventures president, Tom Jessup, said the firm has done a lot of work on Ethereum. Um does that surprise you that Ethereum is something that uh, an organization like Fidelity, with its brand and its history and its heritage, is looking to start to bring to its client base? Not at all. I think uh, when Ethereum first came out, people were saying, or people were pitching it as the world computer, whether or not that's happened or is likely to happen, I don't know. But it is by far and away the second largest chain out there. But in terms of um, people building commercial applications tied to real world assets or tied to DeFi or lots of things like that, uh, Ethereum is is a real hot pot and a real place to be. So it absolutely makes sense that if Fidelity as a commercial enterprise wants to be offering things to their clients, uh, that they would look at Ethereum because it's so popular. And I think it's absolutely fantastic that a, that a privately owned, uh, publicly crypto-friendly institution like Fidelity uh, is, is going so hard into this space. In fact, there was an announcement today that Fidelity has set up a UK company that's going to be serving Europe hmm. for custody. Absolutely fantastic news. 
What do you think uh, 2020 looks like for the world of kind of institutional crypto? Because uh, you know, 2019 has been really, really interesting for the nerds, right? We've had the whole DeFi, the, the decentralized finance movement yeah. come along um, and compound.finance and all those guys doing really interesting experimentation built on top of Ethereum and, and platforms like it. Uh, what, what do you think that year looks like? I think uh, from an institutional point of view, a lot of the DeFi stuff that's come online in 2019, I'm not entirely sure how it's going to scale or be suitable for traditional institutions, but it's absolutely a lightning rod to the space and could possibly disrupt lots and lots of things. But in terms of the near, near term, I don't think a lot of the DeFi stuff out there is going to be adopted by institutions. Mm. Outside of that, you know, I used to work for institutions. I'm trying to build an institutional business right now with Archax. Regulated custody is absolutely essential. And I think I said this last time when I, was on, when I was on the podcast. There is no world where a regulated investment manager or trading fund wants to take the responsibility of being their own bank or equivalent. It's just too much liability, and they're just not paid for things like that. So Which is why Fidelity and others are starting exactly. to offer the custody huge. And it's, Coinbase it's so custody, and there's many others out there. Exactly. I would say Fidelity and Coinbase are, are two huge names, and... and uh, Coinbase with more retail customers, but they obviously have their their prime or their pro offering. And then you've got Fidelity in the US expanding to Europe. Uh, you know, I having come from that world, I know how valuable um, a reputation and a brand is. And to have these guys doing it, and uh, I assume getting some kind of regulation, is absolutely huge and really exciting. But do these say thinly traded assets on the fringes of um, institutional finance or do they become something else or do they lead to something else? So is your question for crypto or for security tokens? Well, it was for crypto specifically. Yeah. So Ethereum and Bitcoin especially, yeah, yeah. do they stay in the wilderness as this niche product? So that's a, that's a good question because relative to traditional finance, Bitcoin, even though it's the most liquid in the deepest market, is tiny, yeah. tiny compared to what flows you see on a daily basis around uh, capital markets and money markets and mm -hmm. FX and things like that. So do I think in the near future, Bitcoin is going to become a, uh, a, or traditional crypto is going to become such a large beast that it's going to be considered in the same pair as uh, GBP or USD? Absolutely not. The reason this is so interesting for institutions is, is if you view parts of crypto as an emerging market, then asset managers and hedge funds and family offices all like some like exposure to emerging markets because that's where you find your alpha. That's where you find your uncorrelated returns. And if you believe in blockchain and you believe in its immutable uh, distributed slash decentralized nature, this is something you can hold. You can kind of be your own bank as long as a regulated party is doing it for you in your name. Um, and there are there are out there is alpha here up. And um, obviously, sometimes it goes down as well. Indeed. Well, wherever there's volatility, there's alpha opportunity, right? So, all right. Um, it's time for a quick chill. Uh, Corda is blockchain for every business in every industry. Um, this episode, of course, is brought to you by R3. Uh, Corda is best known for its enterprise-grade privacy, security, scalability, and interoperability ability. Uh, and because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of highly regulated industries, in particular financial services, it can be used by firms of any type or size or in any industry. With Corda, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. Uh, free trial of Corda Enterprise is available at r3.com. Head on over to check it out and shout out to Todd McDonald, friend of the show. 
Alrighty, on with the show. Uh, next story, uh, well, it created quite a bit of debate um, in uh, the crypto sphere Absolutely. lately. Um, story comes from uh, CoinDesk, and of course, it was written by uh, one Jill Carlson, uh, who's definitely known for being uh, somewhat outspoken uh, on in the world of Twitter. But the opening of the article is probably what caught everybody's attention. It asks the question, why hasn't cryptocurrency gone mainstream? Quote, it doesn't scale, it's slow, it's expensive, it's volatile, it's hard to use. Or maybe it was just never supposed to go mainstream. That's not to say cryptocurrency is any less important, meaningful, or useful. Rather, I think perhaps we've been judging cryptocurrency success, or lack thereof, by a false metric. We should not judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree. I mean, that's a metaphor win, if nothing else. I absolutely agree with that, yeah. I mean... This has really, really sent the the sort of the maximalist market just bananas. And it I read has. it and I was like, yeah, like, isn't this what everyone's thought for a while and just didn't want to say? Yeah, and I guess the kind of answer is in your your statement there. It sent the maximalist market wild. And these days, people live in echo chambers and bubbles of bubbles of bubbles. And the amount of people that know about crypto is X percent of the population. The amount of people that know about Bitcoin within crypto is X percent the amount of people that are Bitcoin maximalists and have been for this amount of year, and the way social media works these days, everybody's got an echo chamber, like a self-curated echo chamber. So mm. people think there's a lot of outrage about this, and I guess there is inside these echo chambers, but out in the wild world, people don't even know that this article exists. But I think mm. it's got a point. Um, I mean, it's, it's it, just... it wasn't built for this. Like Bitcoin is absolutely amazing and is a game-changing piece of technology that will change the world. And it allows people to send value from A to B with no rent-seeking middleman, no government, no bank. And that concept is pure and it's absolutely amazing. But as this thing grows and scales, you're going to come up against the frameworks that governments put on us because that's what forms society. Yeah. And that clashes with the libertarian cypherpunks. It does, and I think there's something in the original Bitcoin white paper, peer-to-peer uh, -peer decentralized cash yeah. was, was specifically name-checked in, in the opening of that white paper. Yeah. I think a lot of people, that was the dream, um, but a lot of the people, there were sort of two founding movements. The, you know, preceding Bitcoin, there was a lot of e-gold um, kind of types of movements where people were trying to you know, re-baseline currency against gold after 1971 and, uh, right. and, and Bretton Woods Absolutely. and everything that happened there when yeah. we moved away from the gold standard, uh, which, you know, had caused its own problems. If you, again, Bank of England Working Paper 605 and many other works of economics will tell you all of the problems that we had with inflation in the 70s because of the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Like, we would see wild periods of, you know, double-digit percentage inflation, which was having massive harm on the economy. Yeah. Now, maybe we've swung too far the other way. Well, I was about to say, um, where have we swung to? Because I think there's an entire generation of people that were old enough to know what the financial crisis was and have spent the last 10 years thinking, what is money? What is government? What Maybe are they actually giving me? No me? Mm -hmm. Don't hurt me no more. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, I think a lot of the crypto space is born out of that, is when people say, I've got a £10 note in my pocket, and there's some wording on there that says you can redeem this at the Bank of England or something like that. That's not actually the case. Mm -hmm. And now what is fiat currency backed by these days? It's not backed by resources. It's not backed by gold. And if you were to believe libertarian cypherpunks, fiat currency is backed by military might. Yeah. Uh, and people have started to question money and what it actually is. And I really like that about the space. And that's one of the most interesting journeys I've been on is when people start to think, um, what does it all mean? The lesson from Bitcoin maybe wasn't uh, the 
everything would be turned upside down. The lesson would be maybe everything isn't the way it should be and should we reconsider it? Just think about it, exactly. Yeah. And I don't think it I don't think it will scale because it is a it, it is a technology that is, I don't know, 11 years old, and it's not going to scale like some of these next-generation distributed mm. ledgers and blockchains. But the concept and the implementation and the, the front page of the Times being embedded into the Genesis block or whatever it was, it's just an amazing, pure political statement that people have run with. And it's just it's an incredibly exciting thing. And I don't really know where it's going, but it's made people think about money. And I think that was the mm -hmm. purpose of it. And you've got some fundamental trade-offs between centralization and performance and decentralization and censorship resistance. And those trade-offs are not necessarily just pure technological. They're economic, they're incentive-based, exactly. and they're, they're consistent because of the way difficulty works in Bitcoin. Um, that That difficulty uh, element of uh, the hash cash algorithm means that over time, it will get more difficult to solve the problem. So new uh, Moore's Law doesn't really help you. Yeah, in the sure. Way that it otherwise would. All righty, next story comes from, well, the SEC directly. Uh, shout out to the SEC. Uh, yeah, you know me. Um, the SEC have charged a founder of a digital asset issuer with a fraudulent ICO. The statement read, um, the Securities and Exchange Commission today uh, charged a digital asset entrepreneur and his company with defrauding investors in an initial coin offering that raised more than $42 million from hundreds of investors. Aaron Eyal, the founder of United Data Inc., conducted a fraudulent unregistered securities offering by selling shopping tokens in an ICO. Shopping was aimed to use the funds for the sales of the shopping tokens to create a universal shopper profiles maintained on a blockchain that would track consumer purchase histories across different online retailers and then recommend products based on the information. I mean, this is like take something that sounds vaguely like a good idea, say the word ICO, and then... Blockchain. Like, yeah. Blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Wow. Um, again, another one comes out in the wash. There's a lot of wow, and there'll be, and there'll be more of these. Mm. And they, uh, the regulators like the SEC only have a limited amount of resources, and they've got, I'm sure they've got a stack as high as three desks, and mm. they're just working their way through them because it was an absolute madness. Mm -hmm. And people took uh, advantage of that and... Um, a very long time ago, I read a book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds that mm. was written in 1840. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was revised in 2008, post-financial crisis. And I think there'll be another revision to do with the ICO boom because the whole thing that happened tapped into human nature uh, for good and for bad. Uh, and some really good things happened and lots of bad things happened. And I think the way people raised money... Uh, it was impossible for the regulators to keep up with the speed of change and the speed of activity in the space, in this extremely nascent space back then. But now they're catching up and, th and they're going to get these people. How do you think this impacts something like your business when you see headlines like this? How do you think it impacts confidence in something like your business? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my business is all about regulated activity in traditional capital markets and just finding a new way of uh, uh, lowering the barrier to entry and opening up parts of capital markets to people that weren't traditionally able to participate uh, so I see no effect on my business because it's like it's like asking uh, a traditional brokerage in London how do you see these ICO things uh, mm. affecting your business worlds but, away but it, what it doesn't do it doesn't help the the perception of the space because you've got I don't know let's say 90% of people don't know anything about this space. And as it becomes more and more popular and more and more people know about it, you still come up against people that hear the word Bitcoin or hear the word crypto and think drugs, mm -hmm. money laundering, uh, fraud. 
And that is not going to help the adoption of a world where bits of capital markets and bits of transferring value is powered by distributed ledger technology. So I do find that quite frustrating. But regulators exist to protect, ultimately, retail. And they are going after people that defrauded retail. And uh, and I think it's a great thing. Here, here. Well, speaking of uh, frauds, um, one more. Crazy. Uh, story from Bloomberg. Three men are charged in a $722 million cryptocurrency fraud in the US. Uh, three men were charged by prosecutors helping to run what amounted to a high-tech Ponzi scheme. For, uh, from 2014 until this month, they operated the BitClub network, which solicited money from investors in exchange for shares in a purported cryptocurrency mining pool and rewarded them for recruiting new investors. Uh, one of the three men, uh, Matthew Brent Gertschi, uh, if that's how you say his name, uh, referred to potential BitClub network investors as dumb and sheep, saying he was building the whole model on the backs of idiots. Uh, and according to a statement in September 2017, Gertschi sent an email to a co-conspirator in which he suggested the BitClub network would allow them to retire um, rich as fuck. What a nice guy. What a lovely human being. So this is a multi-level marketing slash Ponzi scheme, uh, which have existed in tra- the, the traditional world for many, many years. And, and obviously, there's been literally been billions of dollars worth of fraud, including the famous Bernie Madoff in, in mm-hmm. the financial crisis. So this is not new. It's just powered by the bubble mentality that the distributed ledger world had for a couple of years. And uh, I hope they get all the justice they deserve. But this stuff is not because of crypto. This stuff has always existed. It's just... Crypto was a convenient thing for people exactly. who are doing Ponzi schemes and exactly. multi-level marketing exactly. scams to uh, to use. And of course, we did have uh, Jamie Bartlett from OneCoin on a couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago. Oh, yeah, amazing. And uh, you know, do you think on the back of that, that you know, reaching popular culture, regulators feel more of a sense of pressure to act on these things? Or? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, 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 it will always be the case that when something moves quickly, the regulators are unable to move at the same pace. But they've always got, at least in the UK, common law, do no harm, you know, don't defraud people that they can get people on. Um, I think they have to protect the end investor. They have to protect retail. And you see in traditional finance and the world of crypto, people getting burned by schemes, people getting burned by frauds. And I think this will just add fuel to the fire of the regulator going to the government and saying we need more powers or we need accelerated things to kind of stop people from having their money stolen. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. Uh, next story comes from Cointelegraph, and this is about Chainalysis providing Bitfinex with privacy-safe tools to combat crime. Big <laughs> um, words. For those of you who don't know, of course, Chainalysis provide blockchain data and analysis for government agencies, exchanges, and lots of other actors in the world of um, sort of crypto asset trading um, to help identify bad actors mm. and, 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 and other risks, uh, transaction monitoring, uh, identification and reporting, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, Bitfinex will uh, be able to use the real-time monitoring capabilities to identify high-risk outliers amid a volume of transactions. Automated and granular due diligence tools can also help exchange uh, better allocate resources, enforce compliance, and robustly counter financial crime, the press release claims. So, I mean, it's a press release about they're doing what everybody else does, right? I mean, people have been working with tools like Chainalysis and Elliptic and others, CypherTrace, for a number of years, this is table stakes. It isn't the biggest surprise that like they've just done this now. I think it is. Uh, it's interesting to see what they are making a song and dance about. Uh, obviously, 
chain analytics tools are a useful thing to have, but they're not the the be-all and end-all of what a business should have in its stable to make these kinds of decisions around who they let transact on the platform. I view these analytics tools as like a a service provider that builds up a black book of information over time and sells you access to that black book so you know with things like Bitcoin what wallet addresses have potentially had flows through them that potentially at some step in the chain, because obviously Bitcoin is pseudonymous and one of the great things is you can see uh, where these transactions have been and gone. Well, um, and, the, and in the world of financial markets, you'd see uh, Equifax, Experian, yeah. Dow Jones. There's others that do this sort of thing. Absolutely. And we haven't, so Archax has an a, a regulated AML KYC provider for all of our investors and customers. And so this is kind of, this is basic stuff from traditional finance. Where chain and analysis is, is uh, very interesting is in traditional finance, if you have a dollar bill in your hand, there's, I guess there's limited ability to know where that uh, dollar bill has been and gone through. Whereas with uh, Bitcoin transactions, you do have more of an ability to look at where something has gone. And if, uh, and what I find very interesting about AMLD5, Anti-Money Laundering Directive 5 coming in, is if, if a venue receives the equivalent of one Bitcoin and they can see that it's come to them through um, a path or a route where five transactions down the chain, it potentially went through a wallet address that potentially has something negative associated with it. Is that too close? Is mm. 10 too close? I'm interested to see how that, how that actually plays, that plays well, out with I crypto think about firms. It with cash, right? So yeah. if, if you got your hands on a £10 note, but you could see everywhere that £10 note's been, um, how many hops would it have to go till that was exactly. in, some, in a criminal's hands? Yeah, yeah. And who's responsible for checking that yeah. that £10 note was never, ever used yeah. for anything bad, ever? Yeah, which is obviously is just not the case. Um, right. I guess cash like Bitcoin is a bearer asset, but in the world of cash, you, rely, you have a framework of relying on regulated financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a regulated financial institution, I can place reliance that the uh, entity that sent me that uh, fiat currency has done their checks and the, it kind of stops there. But with the technology behind Bitcoin, all these other options open up and, and there's not a mature regulated framework behind uh, where Bitcoin moves to and from because it's Bitcoin. Um, but it is a bearer asset. So I think Bitfinex announcing the use of this tool is is great and it will feed into their management information. But if you take a more holistic point of view, um, the, the mosaic theory behind powering of exchange the size of Bitfinex, you need chain analysis, but you also need other tools. And AML KYC is part of that. And looking at the provenance of the instruments that trade on your venue is absolutely key. Do you think the shape of the market has really changed in the last two, three years that, you know, a couple of years ago, Poloniex and Bitfinex were, were really, really the big names. And now, um, you know, you can't move for the likes of uh, Huobi mm -hmm. and, of course, the, 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 the big monster uh, that is Binance. Uh, but there's also the market makers are changing shape. The, the smaller names are getting more well-known. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a, a changing in the guard almost? So I think the growth of the space has brought more participants to it and... Uh, there are more asymmetries information and there are more arbitrage opportunities. And, and as such, traditional providers in the space like OTC desks and market makers will step in because it's it's another route for them to make money. So shout out to B2C2, who are, who are an incredible shop based here in London. Also shout out to LMAX, who are an incredible exchange. I believe uh, they are a London FX venue, but they also have a Gibraltar domiciled crypto, and they do incredible volumes and, they, and their growth has been incredible. I think that... Uh, 
shops like that change the market structure. And I think the way it's changed over the last two years is um, you've had the crazy ICO boom. And then the ramifications of that and the kind of firms shutting down, firms being bought at the top for hundreds of millions and then being spun out of firms to go and trade in jurisdictions that have a lot less regulatory oversight. That's happened a few times. Some firms have shut down. There is no ICO mania where they're making money from listing fees. Um, so I think I think the market is getting more efficient. And I know that there are massive quantitative hedge funds who were involved in Bitcoin for two, three years. And some of them do exchange arbitrage and they have arbed out a lot of the inefficiency in the market. Mm -hmm. So they've kind of made their money now and um, they're now looking for other ways to make the market more efficient. But the more shops like B2C2 uh, and other market makers like that, the, the, the better chance of getting a fair price when you're buying things like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be interesting to see how some of the other exchanges compete, ones that maybe have skeletons in their closet from the ICO days, ones that may or may not have listed securities, ones that have um, offices all around the world uh, and are kind of trying to build like a vampire squid around the world for the for the world of crypto. It, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. There's the name of your memoirs, the vampire squid for the world of crypto. Yeah. Um, uh, already. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. A uh, story came from The Block. TikTok owner works with a Chinese media outlet to register a new blockchain and AI company. My buzzwords. Blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Um, but AI, TikTok. Oh, yeah. What more? ML, AI, TikTok, stealing your information, putting it on a blockchain. Privacy. Privacy, yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, um, story from The Block. Quadringa CX creditors request proof of the exchange CEO's death. Uh, wow. I mean, when they make a revision of that book I was talking about earlier, this quadriga uh, uh, escapade, if that's the right word, a potential escapade, will be in that book. It's just just this space. This space has a, creates a lot of um, ammunition for people like uh, FT Alphaville to use. And yeah, the, I mean, the stories madness. that come out of this space are just like there are books and movies to be made. I'm yeah. surprised we haven't seen more Hollywood stuff around crypto yet. But, some... but if people think of things like Bitcoin as bearer assets, back in the day in the 70s or whatever, people used to run around with briefcases of bearer bonds and, and they used to do good things with them and they used to do bad things with them. But I bet you there are lots of funny stories and kind of heist stories and all kinds of things because of bearer bonds. Bitcoin, because of the way it's set up, for me, is the same kind of thing. Ah. If you lose it, you lose it. It's done. There you go. Uh, that's a good uh, historical reference. And the Filecoin testnet is now live. Shout out to those guys. Shout out to those guys. Um, this was one that people looked at during the ICO phase. And get interesting that given the SEC have come clamped down somebody for not getting live, getting live seems to be a, a really key moment. Yeah, fair play. Um, all right. It's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from, of course, Jamie Bartlett, most recently famous for the Missing Crypto Queen podcast, whose handle is at Jamie J. Bartlett. His tweet reads, My year-end prediction. 2020 will be the year that people predict 2021 will be the year <laughs> of blockchain. Yeah, fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, having just written my 2020 blockchain predictions, um, I resemble that remark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. I think he's bang on. Um, Jamie Bartlett was actually on our podcast just two episodes ago, as I mentioned. It was episode on 125. So if you're interested in all of the world of OneCoin and what happened behind the scenes in the Missing Crypto Queen podcast, do, do definitely check it out. It was fantastic. 
amazing story and, and and symptomatic of the craziness of the madness of crowds indeed indeed so that wraps up this week's show just to remind you all this podcast is brought to you by 11fs and we are a challenger consultancy and well a lot more than that a media company platform company building out uh core banking propositions and we're waking to change the very fabric of financial services by unleashing talent so that's taking it. over the world yeah one uh, one podcast at a time so where can people find out more about you matthew so the website for Archax is www.archax.com or you can check me out on Twitter. My handle is at M underscore J underscore PO. Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or you can email me directly, Simon at 11FS.com. A big thank you as always to our amazing production team and media team here at 11FS. Producers Laura, Petrick, Hannah, Olivia and of course Alex, our editor, who's always keeping things for the blooper reel. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Um, and uh, we'll have more blockchain inside of next week. Bye for now.